Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians who I'm lucky enough to call friends. They've got a lot to say about life lived on the road, in a recording studio, and what folk music means to them. This week's guest is Pat Wichter, singer, songwriter, guitar player, slide guitar player, bass player, saxophone player, teacher, and all around one of my favorite people. He is also best known as a founding member of the folk trio Brother Son. Welcome, Pat. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. We tend to catch up from time to time, so I'm just going to go about this like one of our phone calls. Beautiful. (laughs) We just pick up where we left off, so it really doesn't matter how long or short it's been since our last communication. We always just pick right up, and I love that. Oh, me too. I do. I do. I miss you, Pat. I miss you too, Cheryl. It's crazy. Well, how's Brooklyn, New York? Well, it's fine. We sort of had our scariest moment back in March and April with the pandemic. And actually, Brooklyn and New York City are doing better than we were back then. There are more people wearing masks and more people being careful. How long have you been living in New York? I moved here in 1989. So we're now talking, coming up on 32 years. Wow. The longest I've lived anywhere. Wow. I moved around. Yeah, I know you traveled a lot as a kid. So I like to start at the beginning sometimes. So tell everybody where you're from originally. I know you did travel as a kid, but where were you raised? Well, I tell people this is an essay question (laughs) because we moved around so much. Were you an army brat? What was going on? My dad was in the oil business. He worked for Exxon. And he was on basically an expatriate track. So we moved around a lot and we were often in places where there were also other American expatriates. So I actually ended up going to American schools, for example, when I lived Uh, abroad. Was that tough for your mom? Well, my mother was the kind of person who always put on a brave face. So if it was tough on her, she never said. I suspect that it was. I don't know. My mother was, I think, an unusual woman for the time that she grew up. Yeah. So she and my father met in Venezuela. Oh, I didn't know that. My mother grew up in small town, Southern California, in La Puente, California, which is Los Angeles County. And she picked herself up. After years of being a school teacher in Los Angeles County, she moved to Venezuela as a single woman in the 1950s. Now that's interesting. Yeah. So that says something about what an adventurous person she was. I would say that it was probably hard on her, but she clearly was the kind of person who didn't approach these things in a conventional manner. Yeah. And I'm sure she enjoyed... The idea of seeing new places and experiencing new places, so... Yeah, she was full of curiosity, and she fed our curiosity. Now I know where you get it from. (laughs) Yeah, so I was born in Venezuela, in the eastern part of Venezuela, near the Guyana border, in a very small town called Caripito. My mother used to tell the story that, you know, I was born in a clinic, and (laughs) there was only one doctor, 
And there was another woman giving birth at the same time. And so the doctor was running between these two rooms. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how far in the sticks, that's how far in the sticks I was born, you know. Good grief. After our family lived in Venezuela, we actually moved from eastern Venezuela to sort of western Venezuela on Lake Maracaibo to a place called Tijuana. And then we moved to Texas, to East Texas, Tyler, Texas, which is actually much more like the Deep South than it is like the rest of Texas. Is that where your memories sort of start? I have, a, you know, small child's memories of Venezuela, and I have more vivid memories of Texas. We moved there when I was six, and we left when I was eight, I guess. And then from Texas, we moved to the Netherlands, and I lived in The Hague. Wow. And we moved in the middle of the school year. I was in the middle of fourth grade when we moved, and we stayed in The Hague until I finished sixth grade. And then we moved to Norway, to Stavanger, Norway. Oh, I love Norway. Norway's a gorgeous place, and it's a good place to be a kid. Yeah. It's a good place to do a lot of outdoorsy stuff. Are you a skier? I am not a skier, which is absurd. It's absurd that I lived in Norway and didn't go skiing. I don't know how I managed that. It's all right. Yeah, something tells me you had a book in your hand from time to time. <laughs> yes, that's a pretty good assumption. Yeah, I was a big reader as a kid. That was a lot of how I spent my time. Did you start music there at all, or did music come later? No, it started when I was in, in school in Norway. Actually, it, it started earlier than that. It started when I was in school in The Hague. They made all the sixth graders play an instrument. And so I played the trumpet. I had to choose something. It wasn't going to be the drums. It wasn't going to be the saxophone. It wasn't going to be the flute or the clarinet. So I ended up with the trumpet and I thought the trombone was too flatulent sounding. So I didn't want the, I didn't want the trombone. So all that was left was the trumpet. So, <laughs> so anyhow, so I played trumpet for a couple of years in a school band, learned the basics of reading music and played also when I moved to Norway and ended up playing in the school band and, you know, marching on the 17th of May, the Independence Day celebrations. You know, the band would learn the school anthem and Norwegian patriotic anthems and all this stuff. And, you know. Sure. I didn't know you played trumpet. I don't know where I read saxophone. Did you ever play saxophone? I did, yeah. I played trumpet up until eighth grade. And then in our school in Norway, they made all the eighth graders learn to play the guitar. And then that was that. Hmm. I never picked up the trumpet again. I was like, <laughs> this is the instrument for me. And then I sort of underwent a rapid evolution in my tastes. You know, I started out playing the guitar, listening to hard rock and heavy metal. And as I was listening to that kind of stuff, I started listening to more and more adventurous music. So from hard rock and heavy metal, it went to, on sort of the more adventurous end of that, was Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, my parents were really kind and encouraging my musical interests. So I subscribed to Guitar Player magazine. They got me a subscription to that. And then I started reading about all kinds of guitar players. And so Eddie Van Halen was really into Alan Holdsworth, who was sort of a jazz rock fusion player and a hmm. really virtuosic one. Right. And so from Alan Holdsworth, that led me to John Coltrane. And because Holdsworth was basically playing saxophone on the guitar. Hmm. So then I started listening to John Coltrane. I didn't like jazz, but I liked Coltrane. And then from listening to Coltrane, I was like, well, who is Coltrane listening to? And then I started reading hmm. books about the history of jazz. That eventually led me to a broader 
interest in jazz and improvisation and stuff like that. I got to tell people this story. There was one time that we were driving along and we had done a bunch of shows in a row. Very singer, songwriter, very calming, wonderful, beautiful shows. And you got in the car and you said, I've got to cleanse my palate. (laughs) I was like, what? Well, I wonder what he's going to put on. Maybe he'll put on polka music. I don't know. What is he going to put on? No, you put on the heaviest, heaviest death metal I had ever heard. And you blasted it to 11. The car shook. And I was, I was horrified. Never in a million years did I see that coming. Yeah, no, I wasn't horrified. I thought it was cool, but I didn't see it coming. I laughed and I laughed. Oh, it was great. It's strange. WSOU, which is the Seton Hall radio in you know northern Jersey, it's a student radio station. At that time, they were blasting all this death metal. It was over 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. As I'm driving around, you know, I'm always listening to radio and trying to run into new things. And I turned on this radio station. I was like, oh, my God, what on earth is that? <laughs> And what I discovered is that the death metal scene has some of the most accomplished and virtuosic rock musicians on the planet. (laughs) They're doing crazy stuff. From a technical musical standpoint, they're doing extremely adventurous music. Oh, they absolutely have to be able to play those instruments and sing. In an informed way, all kinds of rules. Yeah. And so just from a musicianship standpoint, I started getting really interested in that music. I'm not going to show up at one of my own concerts and play anything like that. But (laughs) it was a funny moment. I'll never, ever forget. It was a great, great moment. (laughs) Actually, I love there's a quote that you have on your website from Richard Cacaro of Acoustic Music in New York. Mm. I love this quote. Soft spoken and articulate. In the 1930s, he could have been a Dust Bowl preacher. The sermons accompanied by the choir of his slide guitar would have brought comfort to many a soul. Mm. Mm. That's Pat Victor <laughs> right there, folks. Before he puts on the death metal. Yeah. It's a <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just going to lead back to the thread of how I ended up playing saxophone very briefly. Yes. Which is that after becoming a, a John Coltrane obsessive, And trying and failing to play saxophonic things on the guitar, because, of course, nobody can play like Alan Holdsworth. Hmm. I mean, lots of people actually do, but they're all extremely technical, advanced players. As a high school player, I couldn't come anywhere near that. So I thought, why don't I just play the saxophone? (laughs) Again, my parents, extremely encouraging, helped me to acquire a saxophone, a tenor sax. And I started learning to play it. I was self-taught for, I don't know, a few months And I realized I needed lessons. And by this time, our family had moved back to Norway. I lived there twice. So at the local library, there was an ad for a saxophone teacher. And so I called this guy up. I mean, I thought he was going to help me learn to play, you know, bebop or (laughs) Charlie Parker or something. But it turns out the guy was probably the most prominent Norwegian free improvisational musician playing free jazz. Wow. Okay. And his name is Frodo Jørstad. Yeah. And I studied with Frodo for a few months. I'd go over to his house and we would basically do improvisational games. At no point were we ever playing through chord changes or anything like that, but it was all listening and responding and being in the moment 
and playing whatever it is you were capable of playing at that point. And at that point, of course, I had almost no command over the instrument. So, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Too bad there's no tapes of this. <laughs> oh, golly. It would just be so embarrassing. Yeah, but how cool is that? Because look what you're doing. Look how that sort of paved the way for all that you've done with your writing and your performing. Isn't that amazing? One of the things that I'm learning is that Everything that I've learned and that I've been interested in musically is fair game. I would say I play the vast majority of my concerts in folk music or folk adjacent venues and scenarios. But whatever I'm interested in musically is all fair game if I can find a way to make it somehow coherent and gain some command over it and do it in a way that's accessible. Right. And the people that I admire most, they're all like that. Jack Williams loves classical music and jazz, and you can hear that influence mm. in what he does. I mean, he's still touring around playing in folk music settings. Right. He couldn't play what he does the way he does without his extensive interest and learning about jazz and classical music. Pretty cool. Yeah. I think we're hearing a little Brooklyn in the background. Yeah, I apologize. Helicopter is flying over. That's good. So, <laughs> I'm in the quiet room of the house. So <laughs> part of the gig. <laughs> it's all good. So you're doing all this concert band stuff or, you know, classical jazz stuff at school. You were obviously thinking about a direction to go in career-wise. Was it always music or was it never music? I'll just say this. When I was in high school, I took a number of workshops, a jazz workshop. This is when I was living in London. The Greater London Council had these wonderful open jazz workshops. Basically, anybody could sign up. I threw myself in the deep end and I couldn't keep up with anybody doing anything. Hmm. But it gave me a sense of the music and what was required to play it. And later on, when I was studying with Froda, he took me to a workshop led by John Stevens, who was a drummer and composer and one of the most prominent members of the British free improv, free jazz scenes. He was one of the sort of innovators of that scene. Very significant figure in the development of European improvised music. It was a weekend studying with John. Hmm. That was an amazing experience. How old were you at that point? At that time, I was 18. Okay. And I was one of the youngest people there. I'd had a little exposure to professional musicians in these rather niche genres. By the time I went to college, the idea that I myself could make a living playing music seemed preposterous. <laughs> so that wasn't even something I was considering. I was still playing music the whole time. At the time I went to college, I was still really interested in the saxophone. So I was still practicing. I was still trying to learn things. I actually auditioned for the college jazz band. Cool. That's great. And I didn't get in because I was a terrible sight reader. Uh -huh. It was actually student run. So hmm. the guy running the audition put a piece of sheet music in front of me that had Miles Davis's <laughs> Gingerbread Boy oh, in boy. front of me, which is a breakneck <laughs> tempo tune, by the way. <laughs> I looked at the symbols on the page and I was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And that was the end of my audition. Oh, Pat. Later on that year, the same guy heard me and another guy improvising outside. There was a, an outdoor amphitheater at our school and this friend of mine would go to this outdoor amphitheater late at night. He was a sax player, tenor player also, and we would just improvise freely. <laughs> and so Hugh, the guy running the school jazz band, came and just sat and watched us one night. 
And then when we stopped playing, he said, well, if I knew you could play like that, I would have put you in the band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those auditions are tricky. So I felt a little bit vindicated there. Okay, good. But, you know, I still didn't think of it as the kind of thing one could do for a living. Yeah. And really, there was a pivotal moment where I was at a crossroads and I chose one path, which took me away from music at that time, which is that Hugh, the same guy, his name is Hugh Schick. He's a trumpet player. He's actually a really fine musician. So Hugh said after he saw me and Tim, playing in the bowl. He said, I'm doing a gig with Buell Neidlinger. I knew who Buell was. He was a bass player and composer and a band leader and a significant figure in jazz. He had kind of one foot in the avant-garde and one foot in more conventional stuff. Okay. So Hugh says, I have this gig with Buell Neidlinger. I want you to come and sit in. Which is crazy. Looking back on it, I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I didn't do the gig uh-huh. because I was supposed to go to a protest in Berkeley the next day. Pat Wichter. You know, I had planned on going to this. You know, it was the Reagan years. They were arming Contras in Nicaragua. They were doing lots oh. of bad stuff. Oh, Pat, 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 Pat. You know, I would have told you to go do that gig. Listen, my 54-year-old <laughs> self is still berating my 20-year-old self for not yeah. taking the gig. Yeah. So I went to this protest, and of course, there were no more offers to sit in with anything that Hugh was doing, because I'd made my priorities clear to him. Right. So that's a shame. Right. Because I think if I had taken the other path, I would have struggled. I would have been in over my head. Who knows? They might have all just laughed me off of the bandstand. No way. No, they would have thrown you a solo and it would have been awesome. But I I would have learned yeah. some things that here I am decades later now learning. Huh. But that's kind of who I was as a 20-year-old. I was really concerned about the state of the world. And that was the kind of choice I made. And I wasn't thinking about doing what would be good for my musical development at that point. Sure, sure. So what did you study at school? I was a history major as an undergrad. Oh. I ended up, after I moved to New York and had been out of college for a few years, I went back to school to Fordham and I got my master's, which is a master of arts in teaching history, because I ended up becoming a high school teacher for a while. I think that's when um, I met you or about the time I met you. Just after. I met you in 2002 or three. The first thing we worked on together was Waiting for the Water, your CD. That's correct. Was that your first? No. No. I had a few recordings before that. I had one before that called Temporary Stay, which I recorded mostly with New York musicians. Then I had sort of like some cassette things that I did before that. Let me go back a sec. What was the moment like when you kind of decided to step away from teaching? Was there an actual decision? Did it happen organically? It happened very gradually. So when I got out of college, I moved to New York to become an activist. I was very concerned about the state of the world. And I ended up working for nonprofits and working seven days a week, 10 hours a day, no vacations, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> lots of months left at the end of my paycheck, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like being a folk musician. Yeah. Well, except without any of the rewards. Yeah. <laughs> it was completely unsustainable. Right. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I had a health crisis because it wasn't physically sustainable. And so when I had this health crisis at age 26, something like that, I reassessed everything in my life. And I realized at that point that music was very important to me. I hadn't really touched an instrument in years at that point. And so I went out and bought myself a guitar and I started writing songs. I didn't write my first song till I was 27 years old. And suddenly I realized I had the 
compulsion to write songs. So I thought, well, okay, I, gee, I wish somebody would sing these. I don't know anybody who will sing this, so I guess I'm going to have to sing it. So then I had to learn. I mean, I, I knew how to sing and I knew how to play. I didn't really know how to do them together all that well yet. So, okay, I have to practice that. And then I realized I was losing my voice all the time that I was singing. So then I went to get some voice lessons. <laughs> then it was like, okay, now I've had this voice lesson. I've been practicing. It seems like a shame to do all that and not play somewhere. So then I went out and tried to find myself some gigs in New York. I'm trying to paint the picture here. This was an incremental process where I didn't have some plan. You didn't have a plan. <laughs> I didn't have some ambition. Yeah. I was just literally putting one foot in front of the other and bumbling my way into playing music. Not because I wanted a career in music, but because I felt a, a great joy and satisfaction in playing music. So you hit some open mics, I guess, New York? Yeah, I hit some open mics. I played at some places that were ad hoc venues. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a cafe in the East Village that stayed open for only a few months, but they had me play there a few times. Some friends of mine introduced me to the fellow who booked the C-Note. Oh, I remember him very well. So I played a few times at the C-Note. Yeah. People don't realize how hard it is to actually gig inside New York City and make any money. I mean, you can gig. Well, yeah. Oh, you can get plenty of gigs. Yeah, but you, you can't. Just... <laughs> you won't make any money. <laughs> no. 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 But you'll meet some great people. Oh, yeah. Which is pretty much how I've created my entire career. Yeah. Was meeting the people that I met at the New York City open mics and gigs. That's huge. That's a community, right? Yeah. And of course, the conferences that we, we went to together. Yes. But you and I met yes. Gene Gibson got us together, but I wasn't living in Philly. Well, we were both living in New York. You were in New York at that time? Well, what year was Waiting for the Water? 2003 was when we recorded it and it was released in 04. Oh, just, just, just moved to Philly that August uh, of that year. Yeah. So I was living in New York for 10 years before that, and we didn't know each other. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's totally crazy. It's nuts. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody. I was looking for a community, and I was, in most cases, failing to find one. <laughs> <laughs> but Gene Gibson, God bless him, thought that we would be a good match together and my percussion with your songs. And I think one of the first songs I heard you play was Heaven is So High and I'm So Far Down. Mm. I can't hear the beating of the angel's wings I don't hear no chorus of the angels sing Got a head full of worries in this city full of sounds Heaven is so high and I'm so far down one of my favorite songs. And of course, I don't know if you had all the girls from Full Frontal Folk, but Jen was singing on that one, right? I had Jen, yes. Jen Schoenwald, also, who's no longer with us, sing on that song. And it's one of my favorite songs mm. of all time. Well, I did end up getting all the Full Frontal ladies on Love is the Water. That's right. On Waiting for the Water. That's right. Jean knew all of them and corralled all of them yep. to come in. And basically everybody who played on that record was somebody that Jean knew. That's right. You did I Will Walk With You. I remember that song. I haven't heard that mm. in forever. 
Maybe we'll play a snippet. I am owner of no light, and I cannot be your guide. My eyes cannot see through the unknown. I will sure and steady stride through the darkness at your side. I will see to it you do not go alone. I will take upon my shoulders your worries and your woes. I will walk with you down your darkest road. On your passage in the shadows, you will not go alone. I will walk with you down your darkest road. I just love that one. And you tackled Dave Carter's When I Go. Yes, yes. So, so beautifully. Those are all on the second record that Gene right. and I did together yep. on Heaven is So High and I'm So Far Down. Yeah, and we've had Tracy Grammer on this show, and we've talked about that. So all our paths have intertwined. A beautiful thing that you did, and I just want to thank you on behalf of Charles Nolan, is you did a version of his song, Your Gentle Soul Surrounds Me. Yes. On Heaven is So High. Your gentle soul surrounds me like a harbor from the sea. And all the tears and shipwrecked years that haunt my memory I held at bay for one more day Each time I see you smile Your gentle soul surrounds me For a little while What an incredible, beautiful version So thank you for doing that It's an incredible, beautiful song And Charles is a really gifted songwriter And I was honored to record it Gorgeous, gorgeous song I am still, (laughs) 15 years later Furious at him for having written it in one hour (laughs) But those were the days when we all hung out at Falcon Ridge, Yes, right? And we all hung out at Falcon Ridge. We all camped together at the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival in uh, Hillsdale, New York. We would sit around the non-campfire and (laughs) we would pull a prompt out of a hat and we would have an hour, go into our tents or cars or wherever and write a song. I know I came back with maybe a line or two, Yep, if that. Yep. Other people came back with some choruses, maybe a verse. Yeah, little tear-stained scraps of paper. (laughs) And then Charles came back with a full-blown masterpiece. And we were all in awe of him. And at least in my case, I was furious at him. (laughs) With great love, with love and respect. You were so sweet. I think you said right away, I want to cover that song. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I knew the moment he sang it that I really wanted to sing it. Beautiful song. Thank you. On his behalf, I'll say thank you. Those solo CDs of yours, I know not just because I'm on them, but because, (laughs) uh, a little bit because I'm on them, but a lot because your songwriting, your slide guitar playing, and your arrangements and the beautiful 
recording of the songs. I think they're spectacular CDs to this day. Well, thank you, Cheryl. That means a lot. Well, you're welcome. So folks, go out and get those because they're treasures. Another CD we got to work on, I must, must, must speak of this album. This is absolutely real. These are the songs of Phil Oaks, right? Yes, yes. I recorded this one later in 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's an entire album of my interpretations of songs written by Phil Oaks. Some of them well-known and actually some of them that are not as well-known. Yes, I dug into Phil's back catalog to Mm -hmm. try to bring out some of the ones that were not quite so famous. One of my favorite songs on that album is Knock on the Door. Oh, yes. In many a time, in many a land With many a gun, in many a hand They came by the night, they came by the day Came with their guns to take us away Somewhat appropriate for all that we are living through here in January 2021 to give folks a perspective of when we're recording yes. this. An incredible interpretation. I must be honest, I was a little nervous about the fact that I was playing full drum kit. I wasn't sure what Sunny Oaks was going to think about this version of this song. I was very nervous. I think she really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> she does. Don't tell anybody. But I sort of think of her as my East Coast mom in a certain way. She has been extremely encouraging. And really, I take a lot of liberties with Phil's songs musically. I don't do it randomly. I don't do it to put my own stamp on it. I do it because I think there's some other feeling or emotion inside the song that I want to bring out. And so the versions I do sound very different from Phil's. And Sonny has really never once told me that I've gone too far. Although there was one moment. During a show? No, on my Sunset Waltz album is a version of one of Phil's songs called City Boy. And I was rehearsing the song backstage. And when I finished rehearsing it, Sonny looked up and said, Oh, that's funny. Phil has a song called City Boy. Uh oh. And that's when I knew if Sonny didn't recognize the song, then maybe I had gone half a step too far. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> For those who don't know, tell folks about the Phil Oaks Song Nights. Yes. So Sonny Oaks, after Phil Oaks took his own life, Sonny, recognizing her brother's genius and his importance, set about trying to keep Phil's music in the air and in the public square and in people's ears. And so she started organizing concerts dedicated to the music of Phil Oaks. And sometime in... 2005, about 15 years ago, I was playing at a festival and there was a Phil Oaks round. And so I was included and I had to learn a Phil Oaks song. That was my first exposure to playing Phil's music and the first time that I met Sonny. And I did a version of a song that Phil co-wrote with Bob Gibson called That's the Way It's Gonna Be. That became my (laughs) go-to Phil Oaks song for quite a while. 
If you say that all the good times are gone If you say this rain will keep raining on I'll walk along with my head held high Finding a song and I'll sing it to the sky I may be wrong, but I live till I die. That's the way it's gonna be. Wait and see. What's fascinating is that, you know, I recognize it as a blues, but all the extant recorded versions of it didn't sound anything like no. a blues. You know, they were these frantic. <laughs> you could picture all the guys in matching sweater vests as they're, yeah. if you say they're all True. the good times, yeah. you know. So I slowed the song down and gave it a blues rhythm and a blues chord progression. and Because it absolutely, it, it totally is a blues. You do have a lot of blues musicians and, and writers that have influenced you over the years. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, a lot of your songs, a lot of your interpretations of other people's songs, they have a bit of a bluesy feel. Yes. Since the moment I started playing the guitar as a teenager, I was an enthusiast of the blues. But I didn't really start investigating it until I started learning to play slide guitar. And my journey into slide guitar began with a friend of mine in New York named David Belmont, a, a longtime friend from my days as an activist here. David loaned me a CD by a slide guitar player named Kelly Joe Phelps. And I was reluctant to give the CD back to him. I wore the damn thing out. It was such an incredible CD. And then David, being the resourceful guy he is, he was always keeping an eye out for when Kelly Joe came to town. So every time Kelly Joe came to town, David and I would go to see him. And so the first time I went to see Kelly Joe Phelps, seeing what he did on stage, it demystified what I had been hearing on the record. Hearing the record, I was like, how does he do that? And when I saw him do it live, I understood it immediately. He was playing in, a, in an open tuning and he was just playing finger style. He was doing basically Piedmont style picking with a slide guitar, with a lap slide. He was playing it lap style with a steel bar. And so I got the bug. I was like, I have to learn to play like this. And sometime around this time, on a visit home to my parents in California, my father presented me with a battered old guitar that had belonged to his uncle. And it was this family heirloom instrument. It was not a super high quality instrument, but it had this personality and this grit to it. And it was unplayable because the <laughs> neck was super warped. And so I said, okay, this is my slide guitar. The strings are so far above the neck. I'm just going to tune it to an open tuning and get a slide bar. And that's exactly what I did. So are you completely self-taught in that style on that? Yes. Oh, yes. I kind of feel the same way about your slide guitar playing. I feel like it's an orchestra of people playing and I mm. can't figure out how you do that. <laughs> so cool. That is so neat. Well, thank you. I would say that a good deal of it is sleight of hand. Mm -hmm. I learned quickly that a lot of what makes not just slide guitar, but good guitar playing in a solo context effective is the power of suggestion. And so I started thinking about how do you imply things that are not actually being played? Well, less is more, right? Yeah, less is more. How do you keep a rhythm, for example, so that when you 
add a couple of other elements, you might even be able to drop out something mm. and your ear will provide it because you've mm. accustomed the ear to that. And if you're keeping the same kind of rhythmic pattern, but you're playing different notes, it all still sounds like there's multiple parts going. So I started thinking about all of that, and Kelly Joe's playing really set me on that path. And I started reading interviews with Kelly Joe. When I get obsessed with a musician, I try to read <laughs> any interview they've ever given. Wow. Because I want to know who they're listening to, and I want to know how they think about music. Okay. So I started reading interviews that Kelly Joe gave, and he started talking about his influences, which included Robert Pete Williams and Skip James and Sunhouse and people like this. So yeah. I went on a binge of investigating blues players, many of whom were from the Mississippi Delta, but not all of them. Robert Pete Williams was from Louisiana. And so I sort of spent a few years steeping myself in the blues. Hmm. And really, if you're going to play slide guitar, there are multiple ways to approach it. But there are musical traditions that lend themselves to slide guitar, and the blues is one of them. Bluegrass and old time right. kind of lends itself to that. Obviously, they're brilliant bluegrass dobro players. Hawaiian music yep. really is the first slide guitar music. I would say that lap slide guitar originates in Hawaii. And then in India, in more recent years, there's a tradition of slide guitar playing, which is adapted from all those other traditions. I love that you steeped yourself into it, that you got involved, because let's face it, as a skinny white boy <laughs> who didn't live in Mississippi, <laughs> you know, you do interpret the blues just spectacularly. I, I applaud you. Well, thank you. It raises lots of questions. The thing you're pointing out is important. Hmm. I'm a white guy. I'm middle class. I'm not black. I'm not from Mississippi. I'm learning something from people whose lives were very different from mine, who created their music under very different conditions. Absolutely. Well, you're honoring them. You're honoring them. Yeah. I think. Well, thank you. I'm trying to find what it is in the music, the spiritual essence, the emotional essence, the even if you want to call it the political essence. I want to find right down to the marrow of it. What hmm. makes that music unique and what can I learn from that so that I can do it in my way so that I'm not pretending to be somebody else, right. but I can right. express some of what that music expresses in my own way. That's really what I'm trying hmm. to do. And so there's a whole lot of songs in the blues repertoire that I can't sing because I can't sing those words with a straight face. You know, I hmm. can't sing about what was the old Robert Johnson song, me and the devil <laughs> walking side by side. I'm a beat my woman till I'm satisfied. I can't sing that. Yeah, good. <laughs> but that was the world that he came from. Yeah. That was a part of the life that he was singing about. So I think that's part of the job, really, is to learn and figure out how to do it in your own way. Amazing. Well, then you were at an interesting crossroads in your career as well. I know you were contemplating maybe taking some time off, maybe going back to teaching, but you uh, started playing music with a couple of folkies, started a group called Brother Son, and the rest is history. Yes. Tell us about how that happened. Well, you know, the Great Recession in 2008 really started taking a toll on my music career and the careers of, I'm assuming, some other musicians. Oh, for me, especially as a drummer? Yeah. I mean, people were definitely not hiring drummers because they had to put gas in their car. I understand. Yeah. 
and me among them. I mean, you and I were playing together a lot before that, and then it became pretty clear that I couldn't afford to play with you much after that. That's right. I forgot. And part of what was happening was that artists who were used to playing larger venues, they were now playing in smaller rooms. And those smaller rooms were the rooms that I was playing in. And so (laughs) I started getting bumped down in people's queues. People presenting concerts, understandably, wanted to have a sure thing rather Mm -hmm. than somebody who may or may not fill the seats on their calendar. So, yeah, it started getting harder to make a living around that time. And around that time, this is the summer of 2009, I was playing at a Unitarian Universalist Summer Institute. My friends Joe Jenks and Greg Greenway were also there. And at this concert, I invited the two of them to come and sing with me. And the three of us rehearsed for an hour, went on stage and sang. And it had this incredibly powerful electric energy, the combination of our voices. I think all three of us felt that, and we all agreed that we wanted to do more of it, and it took a little time to make it happen, but that grouping became Brother Son. And Brother Son was all about the sound of our voices together. It was so powerful. Harmonies, you know, you all brought your strength in songs, and then each one of you would bring a song to the table and accompany each other. I was in a band like that called CC Railroad for a while. And it's a very powerful feeling and a wonderful experience to create something like that with other people that you admire and like to spend time with. Who didn't love their brother-son concerts? Oh, man. (gasps) Great. Yeah. We made a lot of incredible music that we're all very proud of. It was powerful stuff. Yep. Keep it on. In some ways, the three of us had the best seat in the house because there we are (laughs) feeling surrounded by the sounds of all three of our voices. That's a great feeling. Yeah, it's a joyful feeling. I had not had an intensive experience singing together with other people like that since the time I was in a choir in high school. So it had been decades since I'd sung with people. The audience grabbed that. The feeling in the audience was like seeing a full choir. Like it was just so wonderful to watch you enjoy each other and then also experience the sounds that were coming out of your voices as well as your instruments. And I know that for each one of you, being in a quote-unquote, I'll say band, you either hadn't done it before or hadn't done it in a long time. So what was the adjustment period like? (laughs) Can you tell us? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think for all three of us, the adjustment really was to go from being a solo performer to being in a situation where the audience's interest is in all three of us. And so we had a lot of dialogues about how to, instead of fighting that, to reinforce it, Mm -hmm. to give attention to each other, to allow each person to shine in a certain way on stage. One of the things we had a lot of dialogues about was how to make sure that each of our strengths could become a strength for the band. Well, bravo. Not always easy to do. Yeah. But it worked. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I know you've had other vocal projects. Yes. 
I know obviously the last year has been hard and I know you actually had COVID and had to deal with all that. Yes, I did. It was back in March, actually, early on in the pandemic. So that kept you down for a while, I know. Yeah, it took me about six months to feel normal. And even now, still, I have days where I can tell I'm not 100% every couple of weeks, as opposed to every other day or two thirds of the days. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. And before that, you were doing some vocal work. Yes. Concentrating on vocals. Yes. In 2013, during my time with Brother Son, 2013 was a tough year because my dad died in February while I was at the Folk Alliance Conference, of all things. I remember that. And then my mother passed in October that year. But we had several scares, basically, during the year where it looked like her time had come. And I would leave the road and go out to California to see her. and, And she'd pull through, which was a wonderful thing. But this was a lot for me. And I wanted to do something musically that was the kind of joy that I hadn't experienced. I wanted to have an adventure musically. Okay. I ran across Bobby McFerrin's website and seeing that he was leading a vocal workshop at the Omega Institute in New York. Hmm. And I talked it over with my wife. It wasn't cheap and it was for a whole week. And I just said, you know, I'm going to go. Hmm. I'm going to do this for me. And so I went And there were 200 people there from all over the world. You know, we sang improvisational music a cappella for an entire week. Oh, with Bobby McFerrin? With Bobby McFerrin. And not just Bobby, but an entire staff full of brilliant musicians and improvisers whose work I've come to know and respect as people whose genius is commensurate with Bobby's. People like Joey Blake and Judy Venar and David Worm and Christian Karam. I mean, these, these are all brilliant musicians in their own right. And so at that workshop, I met lots of other musicians and singers, one of whom I discovered also lives in Brooklyn. Her name is Deborah Latz. And Deborah comes out of the jazz and performance art worlds. So Deborah and I formed a little quartet Mm -hmm. at this workshop with two women, one of whom lives in France and one of whom lives in the Netherlands. (laughs) So, of course, it only lasted for the duration of the workshop for the week. But all four of us sang together and we just had so much fun. And at the end of it, Deborah and I realized we both lived in Brooklyn. So we talked it over. Do you want to keep singing together? And we did. And do you have something that you can share with us? Yes, absolutely. All right. We released an album actually called Counterpoise, and it's got seven tracks, and it's just Deborah, me, and my guitar. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see Into the light of the dark 
Among twenty snowy mountains The only moving thing Was the eye of the blackbird I was of three minds Like a So it's this very minimalist, lovely record. It's basically all cover arrangements. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Have you been writing during the pandemic? I've been writing a little bit. One of the things that sidetracked my musical efforts was that I sustained a major injury, which made it impossible to play the guitar for several months. I ruptured a tendon in my right arm Ouch. in April. Opening a window, of all things, which is infuriating. I'm now at the age where I'm starting to get old guy injuries, <laughs> absurd injuries doing common household tasks. <laughs> oh, Pat. Oh, dear. So <laughs> it's like, who knew? Who knew that you could get that injured yeah, just opening yeah. a window? So I had to have the tendon surgically reattached, which happened in May. Oh. You know, I've spent most of the last several months rehabbing my arm injury and slowly working my way back to being a guitar player. That put a real crimp in my songwriting efforts. And also your performing, because we haven't really seen you do any live performances online. Might you think about getting into that? Yes, I'm working my way towards doing something I'm hoping in the next month or two. I would love to see it, no matter how short it is. I would be the first one in line to watch a Pat Wichter virtual Facebook Live concert. Ah, I appreciate that, Cheryl. I'm trying to figure out how to make this happen because <laughs> basically after I play a song, I need to rest my arm. Okay. I can't play back-to-back -back songs yet. Yeah. You could video yourself, splice it all together, yep. do some chatting, yep. and put it up on YouTube. That might be a way to do that. The other way I was thinking was to do some spoken word, yep. to do some acapella pieces, yep. oh, yeah. to tell some stories. I am working on this, and I'm hoping to have something to share with people soon. Yay. You were going to play a song for us right now, and it's never been recorded? Yeah. Oh, our folk pod audience is very, 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 very lucky right now. What's the title of the song, Pat? This is called Information War. So as we are recording this, this is just days after an insurrection against the United States Congress instigated by the president of the United States. And this is a thing that's been looming largest on the minds of so many of us here in the States, that the people undertaking all of this have been fed a steady diet of inflammatory, hysterical propaganda, not just for the duration of the president's term, but over a period of decades, there's been a process of demonizing people. So this is the kind of stuff we're up against. So I wrote the song thinking about all of that and the fact that we here in the States have sat through a presidency that has shamelessly and prolifically and unrepentantly lied at every turn. This is called Information War. Mm -hmm. 
is the bullhorn All that yelling I ain't buying What they're selling They want you to believe The truth don't matter anymore Just the latest propaganda in the information war. Which way is up? It's hard to know. Why should I trust the one who lies the most? They say we need a strong man. To steer the ship to shore It's just the latest propaganda In the information war What about the truth? Let the record show Someone stood for right History will know We tried to set the stage To end the dark age Of the information war Fearful minds Ready to receive Say it enough times and people will believe Even when they know it isn't true They still cheer for more It's just the latest propaganda In the information war What about the truth? The record shows someone stood for right, and history will know. We tried to set the stage to end the dark age of the information war. No sword, no shield. But we have to fight Be brave, take heart Keep looking for the light And if you see a cloud of smoke That hides the sun Outside your door It's just the latest propaganda In the information war the latest propaganda in the information war It's just the latest propaganda in the information war Bam. Pat Wichter. You heard it here first, folks, on FolkPod. That was incredible. Is that brand new? I actually wrote it about a year ago. <laughs> That's powerful. Could have been written this week. Yeah, it could have been written this week. 
powerful stuff. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thanks for letting me. I think we've been missing ourselves some Pat Wichter and we could all use a little a little of your music and your thoughts because you do, you put out this really awesome newsletter as often as you can. And I know people look forward to that. <laughs> I won't say monthly. Yeah. My monthly <laughs> newsletter that comes out quarterly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wasn't going to out you, but you just did it. <laughs> no, I think it's good to be honest with people. I like to tell yeah. people I may not be the one you think of often, but I hope it's always with affection. <laughs> oh, absolutely here anyways. <laughs> Pat Wichter, this has been a joy, an honor. I love hearing your stories. There's a lot of stuff I didn't mm. know. And I hope that our audience has got to learn some new things as well. Where can people find you on the interweb? The best place is to go to my website, which is patwichter.com. My last name is spelled like Victor with a W. P-A-T-W-I-C-T-O-R.com. I'm on Facebook. But I have to say, I go on Facebook very sporadically. So I would say my website is a better way to see what I do, to sample my music. And if you want to get in touch with me, of course, to do that as well. This has been a joy. You've been listening to Pat Wichter on FolkPod. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. You bet. I always ask this question, and I have to ask you, can you tell us something quirky, wacko, that we would be surprised to hear. Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> I really like making cookies. <laughs> That's adorable. Now, this is a heck of a thing for somebody who cannot eat gluten, oh, right. by the way. So and who cannot have milk products. No, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I make gluten-free, milk-free cookies. Um, sitting in a jar in our kitchen are some chocolate chip, <laughs> paleo chocolate chip with almond flour and sweet potato flour, actually. Whoa. And they are the most delicious cookies I have ever you made. Like making cookies. <laughs> I never, ever knew that about you. That's adorable. <laughs> Bravo. There's nowhere I can go from there. Folk Pop is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to Folk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Folk Pod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.